Well, this morning, like I said, we do have some very special guests with us, our very own missionaries, and, and we just wanted to have a, give them an opportunity this morning to kind of introduce themselves and, and, uh, and just to, to kind of whet our appetite for what we're going to hear from them. So the, the Blackwells are going to come first, and then uh, the Leeches, and then the Schindlers are going to follow them and just kind of give a brief uh, hello and welcome to our church family. Dobrodan, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. This is uh, a special place. Um, not everybody is connecting the churches and the missionaries on a personal level like you are as a church. So we're really excited to, to be here this week. We appreciate the time that you set aside and inviting us in. Um, we're Kirk and Donnell. Uh, you may have seen our video last week giving a little bit of an overview about what we've been up to. But uh, just as a brief introduction, uh, we went to Russia in 94 for myself, 95 for Donnell. That's where we met. And so since then, we've been ministering in Europe um, until last summer when we were asked to uh, come home and work out of our home office in Kansas City. And I will be um, fulfilling a role as a, a director of training there. So we'll be influencing our next generation of, of missionaries there around the world. And so we're going to spend some time this week talking about um, what we've been involved in in Europe, in Poland, and Slovenia, and we've also had an opportunity to do some training and coaching in India, so we're going to talk about that as well over uh, these next days. So it's really good to see a lot of familiar faces and new faces as well. I grew up in this church and went to the school through 10th grade, and um, so it's great to be back here, and um, I did have a little bit of culture shock when I saw the chairs but they're really comfortable. <laughs> and my parents, Galen and Linda Shelley, can you wave, are here. So make sure you say hi to them because um, I know some of you know them as well. Um, we have two daughters, a 16-year-old Elizabeth and 13-year-old Emily. And we did not bring them this morning. They are back in Kansas City with some friends as they had school. And it's sometimes hard to make up work when you miss it, especially in the high school. So um, it's just us today. And we're off to Children's Church, and we're going to teach them some Slovenes, so you can be happy you missed out on that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is a special place for us as well. Uh, I'm Larry. I'm from California. I grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland. There's a basketball team that maybe some of you know about over there. And that's where I got saved through a Chinese church, which I'm interested in because these dirt people know Chinese. Uh, somehow I got to Pennsylvania and I met a young lady named Kathleen. Now, Kathleen at the time was uh, associated with some church called Mount Calvary. She had taught at Mount Calvary Christian School, and in 1993, right about in that spot, we became, one became two. We joined together as husband and wife, and after we got married, we, uh, she joined me in England. I had been in England for about 10 years, and uh, we had been to different places, and uh, Kathleen is going to mention a bit about what the place we're doing now is. Well, we are in Brandon, and nearby are three military bases, U.S. Air Force bases, 
And just last week we had so much fun because one of our families that we knew um, from when they were stationed in England are now stationed in Virginia. And while the husband's deployed, um, the family, um, Stacy, who I call a daughter of the heart, and her four children came up. It had been six years since we had seen them in England, and we just had the most wonderful time. Hershey Park is incredible, and Chocolate World to do with kids. Man, that was great. Um, that highlights one of the favorite surprises, really, for an England ministry to be associated with Air Force, U.S. Air Force. We didn't quite realize that was going to happen, but for me, it's been a tremendous joy. With um, us being a family of two, we love that we get to borrow other people's children and grandchildren and be family for them as part of our ministry. I just wanted to mention we do work with the British people too. It's, uh, they, they, it happens to be that the Americans are over there as well, but we do work with the British. We work, in, uh, we work with some of the schools and, uh, and some of the things in the community, hopefully. And uh, so you can, we really appreciate prayers. And uh, the culture shock for us, I guess, because of Kurt's saying, is that you people all still drive on the other side of the road. And, uh, but we are getting used to that. So thank you. Hi. Good morning, Mount Calvary. Uh, we are Eric and Kelly Schindler. And we are long-term missionaries to Taiwan. Uh, we've been there for about nine years already. It's hard to believe. Um, we do have two little boys. You might see them running around at some point. Um, we have Max, who is three, and Sam, who is one. And so I think they're in the nursery right now, hopefully. They had a little hard time saying goodbye to us this morning. Um, but anyways, yeah, it's just a privilege to um, be able to come back home. Um, I also grew up in this church. Uh, my family started attending when I was seven, and I went through the Christian school here. So coming back is really like coming home. And so... Um, yeah, we're thrilled to be able to be a part of the missions conference this year. Um, and yeah, we look forward to getting to know a lot of you. There are a lot of new faces out there, um, but we're excited. And so also just want to say thank you for praying for us. Uh, we know a lot of you are praying uh, during our travels this past week. We traveled for about 25 hours last Monday to get here. And so um, yeah, thank you for praying for us. The flights went as smoothly as they can go with two toddlers. So thank you. <laughs> All right, so uh, in Taiwan, we live in the capital city of Taipei, which is located at the very top of the island. And uh, Taiwan is a country of 23 million people, which uh, you might not know, but actually is a bigger population than the whole country of Australia, but crammed into a tiny little space. So the population density is really high. Um, and so we live in Taipei, and in Taipei, our ministry is church planting among the working class people um, in, of our city. And... Um, just to give you an idea of, if, of about 200, 200 of, our, of our local friends that we might meet on a regular basis, taxi drivers, barbers, um, cooks, uh, only one of those would be Christian currently. So uh, the, the rate of Christians among the working class people uh, in Taiwan is about 0.5%. And uh, that's why we're there, to bring uh, the gospel into their lives through creative means. And uh, we are currently, we just birthed our our first uh, church plant among these dear friends of ours, and um, that, that's going well even in our, in our absence. We've got a great coworker team of, of a couple foreigners and mainly um, local Taiwanese uh, brothers and sisters that are, that are just faithfully assisting us in this church plant. And um, Lord willing, towards the end of the year, we hope, along with our team, to start a, go a gospel coffee house as a means to reach out to even more people in our local neighborhood. 
Um, so that's just in brief what we're up to, and uh, we've got a display out in the, in the lobby here. So if you've got a minute after the service, you feel free to stop by and uh, chat a bit more. And then, uh, uh, yeah, as Pastor Jonathan said, we'll be sharing um, during the missions conference in the evenings and look forward to sharing a bit more about what we're doing in depth and show pictures and all the, all the rest. So, yeah, thanks for having us. We're really happy to be here. This morning, as we uh, look into the scripture together, we're going to be talking about the mission of discipleship. But before we do that, it is, uh, I have a point in order. I need to thank you as a church, not only for the many missionaries that you support, but for the direct support and tangible support that you have given to us in BCM. I came to Bible Centered Ministries in 2006, and shortly after that, I had a visit from a group of young people from your school who came to my campus and worked on our property and left me with a T-shirt. So I was there, I did that, and I got the T-shirt. And on that T-shirt, it says Mount Calvary Christian School, I believe, and there's a date on it. <clears throat> I also would like to thank you for the support, tangible, and over the many years that you have given in prayer and otherwise to uh, our BCM missionaries, Joe and Linda Duke. I know that when they came back from the UK, they needed a church home, and you gave them that church home. They needed uh, support in so many ways. You gave that to them. And then I sent Joe off to Brazil here, and you sent someone with him. So I've been excited about what you have done um, over the years and the partnership that we have together in the future. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at what is commonly known as the Shema, or the prayer that uh, in Hebrew starts, uh, Shema, or hear, O Israel. That's Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. As you know, BCM works in over uh, 50 countries, I was recently in Indonesia where I learned a new greeting when you go to church. And the greeting goes like this, Tuhan Mumburkiti. Now, it took me a long time to remember that. I actually wrote it down on my smartphone and kept reading it. And every time people saw me, I was reading my smartphone. Actually, what Tuhan Mumburkiti means is God bless you. So when you went into a church, rather than say good morning, you said Tuhan Mumburkiti. And there's a response to that. And it took me a while to learn that, but I'm going to teach you that response. And the response to that is Boogie Tuhan. Boogie Tuhan means praise God. That's only two little short words, but it's unbelievable how bad my Indonesian memory is. <clears throat> so I tried to attach it to something in my memory. Boogie sounds sort of like an English word of somebody who does one of those old-fashioned dances. Tuhan is like the bird with a long beak that sells Fruit Loops. So we have a dancing bird, that's Boogie Tuhan. And what that means is, praise God. All right, can we say it together? Boogie Tuhan, ready? One, two, three, Boogie Tuhan. Now you're gonna remember that if you remember of dancing Tukan, right? Boogie Tuhan. So I stand up here, I greet you, and I say, Tuhan Mumburkiti, and you say? Boogie Tuhan, very good. We now have a bilingual church, trilingual, because I heard Spanish this morning as well. Let me share with you the story of a young orphan from um, Myanmar. A little guy by the name of Sao Jaung. Sao Jaung was an orphan in the outskirts of one of the small tribal villages in Myanmar. Myanmar had been plagued with uh, civil war and civil unrest where the tribal insurgencies have happened for years there. 
And at eight years of age, both his mother and his father were killed during some of the skirmishes that happened in his village. And little Sal Jaun would travel around the streets looking for a place to eat, looking for a place to sleep. He never knew where his next meal came from. And one day he came in contact with someone who said, you know what, Sal Jaun, I know a place where you can go and you can be safe and you can have food every day and you don't have to worry about bombs and bullets and other things that wake you up in the night. So they took him off to Saigon, Yangyong, not Saigon, wrong country, Yangyong, the capital of Myanmar, where we have a Bethel orphanage, where we have about 48 children there, orphan children who come to us looking for a place to go where they can live and learn and be safe. It's interesting that most of the children, in fact, pretty much all the children that come to us are Buddhist background. And some of their next of kin distant relatives who sometimes bring those children, bring them to us and say, we want you to have this child. We can't afford to keep the child. We don't want him around. Um, take the child. And we say, well, we're a Christian. And they say, we don't mind that. We know that you as Christians, even though you're not Buddhist, will take good care of this child. So Sao Jahong came to the school. He hadn't he came to the orphanage. He hadn't been to school. And it was a little bit of hard for him because we send all the kids to orphans, uh, all the orphans, we send them to the local school and the local high school. And then we have a Bible institute if they want to go to a Bible institute that happens on the property as well. After two or three years, Sao Jahong went from not being able to read or write at all to when he was 11 years old, he was able to keep up with his class. And there was a, if you were here for Sunday school, there was actually a picture of him in one of those slides of the orphanage. What is important about Sao Jaon is not only did he get a place to, place to stay, food to eat, security, and education, but 11 years of age, he made another decision that changed his life. He accepted Jesus Christ, and he was baptized. In fact, about half of the orphans in that orphanage have come to know the Lord and accepted him. The Christmas before last, we had half of those children be baptized on Christmas Day because they heard about Christ, they learned about Christ, they saw him lived in the people at, through the people at the orphanage, and they said, this is what I want. This is discipleship. When we talk about discipleship, it has many faces. Discipleship is not just sitting down in the navigator approach once a week and learning how to read your Bible, preach, and pray. That's important. But discipleship often begins with the creation of a relationship. The creation of a friendship with someone where you gain their confidence and you take them from a point of darkness through salvation into discipleship and into maturity. You multiply yourself. So when we talk about the mission of discipleship, we're talking about the impact that one believer has on another person to bring them to Christ and lead them along in the gospel. This is a missions-minded church. You know the passage in Matthew 28, where Christ said, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore into all the nations. What does it say? And make disciples. Preaching, 
teaching, make disciples, teaching them, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things. We have there four basic principles upon which the underpinning of all uh, biblical missiology is based. Going and making disciples, baptizing and teaching, giving them identity, showing them to obey all the things that Christ has given us. And it's followed by a promise, lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. But one thing we forget about often in the giving of the Great Commission is that he gave it to his disciples. He gave it to people who were already following him. He gave it to people who had heard him preach, heard him teach, watch him walk, watch him do miracles, watch him answer people who were doubters. They were disciples. And so what we often forget, that discipleship is at the heart of global missions. And in order to do discipleship, we first of all need to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow Christ? The last part of that great commission says teaching to obey everything that I have commanded you. You remember another scripture verse that says, even if all of the words that Christ had taught and God had spoken were written down, it would fill a scroll that would expand greater than the heavens and the earth. That's the MUT translation, Marty's Unorthodox translation. So when we're trying to teach the disciples to follow Christ, what do we teach them? And that's where we come back to Mark chapter uh, 12. If you look at that now, we come to the, uh, the Shema, which someone came up to Christ after hearing him talk, hearing him speak, said, Master, and he was trying to catch him in a trap. What is the greatest of all the commandments? And you see in chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus responds. He says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Now, he gave the answer, but he gives him a little extra, almost like dessert. He said, and the second commandment is this. You should love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments beyond which there are none greater When we look at that, that gives us that kernel of truth and life that has to be in the heart of the individual to create create a disciple out of him or her. And to be that disciple, we need to understand, first of all, who our God is. When we talk about missions, we're not talking about spreading the church named after us. We're not talking about new BCM churches in my organization. We're not talking about creating a liturgy that reflects the one that we have in our churches at home. We're talking about creating people who step from darkness into light and learn to walk in that light. And in order to understand that light, we as those disciples, first of all, need to know who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, or is one God, depending on the translation you have. What do we see there? First of all, we see that to know who God is, he is the Lord God. He was God before we recognized him. He will be God after we are gone. 
His identity and his existence does not depend upon affirmation of the world in which we live or the people in this world who walk in darkness that say there is no God or I don't know if there's a God or there's multiple gods. Pick your philosophy. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that the Lord, our God, he is God. Elohim, Jehovah Elohim, as it's written there, referring to creation. In other words, he is God, the creator. And as creator, he has the right to give orders. He has the right to be Lord. So we know that the Lord, our God, is the creator of all things. There is nothing in this creation that was not created by him. We have confidence as his disciples to know that the Lord, our God, is the creator. He reveals himself to us. It's interesting as you go, and I meet a lot of people in the world today that talk about their spiritual journey. I forgot what time I was supposed to end. Two o'clock? Ah, all right. I'll go quick. They talk about their spiritual journey. They talk about discovering God. But when you read the Old Testament, who appeared to Moses in a burning bush? It was the Lord. He said, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. God revealed himself to them. You look at other individuals. You look at Noah. Noah didn't go off to the planning board to ask for a permit to build the ark. God appeared to him and said, Noah, build me an ark. You look at Enoch. You look at Abraham. In all of those cases, the divine God revealed himself to the mortal man. You are sitting here this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, because God revealed himself to you in some way. And when we understand that we don't have an anthropocentric perspective on faith, but that God is theocentric, he's at the center of what we are all about, then we are truly disciples. It's not all about us, it's about him. He is our creator. He is the revealer. He reveals himself to us. And then there's a little personal pronoun. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is Lord. That little personal possessive pronoun, our God. He is our Lord. He is our God. If we choose to follow him, he not only is our creator, he not only is the revealer of himself to us, but he becomes our redeemer. The one who rescues us from darkness. The one who gives us freedom from death. The one who helps us to be reborn in newness of life. And gives us deliverance from damnation and judgment. And gives us a path forward into an eternal future. He becomes Jehovah our God. As a true disciple, we recognize his authority as creator we recognize our responsibility when he redeems himself to us and we accept him as our redeemer. But there's one fourth thing there that we see in there in the use of Jehovah, Elohim, Jehovah, Elohim. And that's this, he preserves us. In Arissa, some time ago, we had a persecution. There's a bunch of believers that were killed. There were churches that were destroyed Every week I get information from Asia, Africa, and other places um, where I see persecution happening from time to time, actually every day. It's not unusual for that to happen. 
It is, however, something that people begin to question when they say, why does God let these good things happen to bad people? We need these bad things happen to good people. My wife is awake. Thank you, dear. You see, if we don't believe that he preserves us in daily life, how can we possibly believe that he will rescue us from eternal damnation? Your security as a disciple in Jehovah, in God, is the fact that he is the anchor of your faith. He is the anchor of my faith. We worked in camps for a lot of years. There was one little girl once I was talking to at camp, and she came forward. You have, we have the campfire at the end often where you throw little sticks in the fire and they make a pledge to be better. And this little girl came forward. She said she came forward to get saved, and we were talking to her. She said, you know, this is the seventh time I've come forward to get saved. And I go, seven times? She says, yeah, I have to come to camp every year and get saved again. And I said, let's have a talk about this. What didn't she understand? She was worried that because she didn't live a perfect life, she would lose her salvation. And what we see in Scripture is God is Jehovah. He is our preserver. He preserves creation. He makes spring happen every year. Although this year, I think the clock got messed up with the snow we had yesterday. He makes fall, he makes winter, he makes the moon come up, the sun go down, he makes the tides, he makes everything happen because he preserves his creation. So when we as believers are actually disciples that can be used in global missions, we understand who our God is. We have to understand his character if we are to fulfill his commandments. Barnes puts it this way. He said, all true obedience depends on the correct knowledge of God. None can keep his commandments who are not acquainted with his nature, acquainted with his perfections, and acquainted with his right to command. God isn't Lord because we accept him as Lord. He was already Lord. He will always be Lord. And there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess to that effect, that Jesus Christ is Lord. But as disciples, we need to understand his lordship, his entitlement to be in charge, and our responsibility to be disciples. God took a decisive step to recreate God's potential to bring glory to his name. Therefore, if I am to accomplish my ultimate goal in life, i.e. to glorify God, I must be transformed more and more into his image and become like Christ. That was Leroy Imes in his book, To Be the Leader You Were Meant to Me. In other words, God originally created people to glorify him, and he wants that back. He created you and I to be worshipers of the divine. That word anthropology comes from two Greek words, a preposition, an or ana, meaning up, and thropos, meaning to look. We were designed to look up to God. And when we don't fulfill that design, we are not completing what God designed for us to do. That's why discipleship fits us so well. That was our original creation. God wants that back, and the way he gets that back is through global missions where disciples go and make more disciples. Love of God is the primary motivator 
for global missions. The second point, what does God want from us? Verse 30 in the same chapter, uh, verse 12, uh, verse 30, chapter 12 of Mark. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your... And they all fell asleep. And with all your strength. Thank you very much. I'm glad that somebody is still with me. He wants us to love him then with all of our heart. What does that mean? He wants total allegiance. No half-hearted Christianity. No lukewarm faith. No ashamedness in the workplace or in the study place or in the community there in which we live to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He wants unreserved, unabashed allegiance to him. That's the first and foremost thing mentioned in that commandment. If we don't commit to him wholeheartedly in the same way he is Lord and committed Jesus Christ for our redemption, then there is no place for us in the discipleship of the kingdom of God. Because a half-hearted disciple will create half-hearted disciples. A lukewarm disciple probably won't have any success at all. Because people will say there is no reality in the faith that person holds. Why would I want to be a Pharisee? Why would I want to be someone who has religiosity, but I have no substance or fabric to the faith that I believe? We need to love him with all our heart. Unreserved allegiance, total commitment. In the Old Testament, they used to sacrifice sheep. I don't know any sheep that took up the business of being sacrificed as a career choice. Because when you were sacrificed, that was pretty much it. When you come to God, you can't have any sideline businesses. He wants you as his disciple. It's everything or it's nothing. It's Lord or not Lord. The second thing, he wants us to love him with all of our soul. That word suke means life or breath, our soul. He talks about redeeming our souls. He wants us to give our complete being to him because we're led, uh, we have allegiance to him. He wants us to live in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has... He wants us to love him with all of our soul, to be willing to give up our life to him and devote it all to his service, to live in him and to be willing to die at his command. I've often thought it's more easier to die for Christ than to suffer and malinger along for him. I'm happy with the idea of dying for Christ, and my prayer is this, Father, I'm ready to die for you, but make it quick so I don't feel it. But when you go through life, you find out that the pleasure of instantaneous painless death is a rarity and it is a luxury. Much more often I find believers in Jesus Christ suffering, suffering because they're persecuted or suffering because they have poor health or suffering because they get old. I didn't plan on living past 25. At 18, I said, don't trust anyone over 21. At 21, I said, don't trust anyone over 25. I hit 25, and it was frightening. I said, don't trust anyone under 30, over 30. I hit the 30, and I said, don't trust anyone under 21. I didn't plan on living to old age. No one told me you get aches and pains. 
No one told me you, you, you lose your immortality, your ability to do everything. I go to Lowe's, I buy mulch, and the guy says, sir, would you like me to load that for you? And I look over here, and they're loading their own mulch. And I look over there, and they're loading their own mulch. And I look at him, and I say, I'm old, I'm not dead. It's a lot easier in some people's minds to die for Christ than to live for him and have the price of the world in which we live exact its toll upon you. But he says, I want you to love, you, love me with all of your heart. I want you to live in Christ. Love me with all of your soul. Be willing to live in him and die at his command. The third thing there, he wants us to love him with all of our mind. Dianoios, that word of through the way that you think. See, we as believers often forget there's a world in which we live that's filled with darkness that doesn't understand the battle between darkness and light around us. We live in a world that recognizes the creation where we're at, the things that you can see, feel, hear, touch, and smell. But what they don't understand is that God in his divine being created not only the material world, but the immaterial world in which we live. And if this world is going to pass away, how much more complicated is the immaterial world that goes on for eternity? And people get an oversimplistic view of the fact that we are engaged in spiritual conflict that lasts an eternity. And when he says, I want you to love me with all of your mind, he wants us to have a God perspective on our worldview. There was a bomb blast happened at the airport in Brussels not too long ago. You may have read about it in the news. We had a BCM missionary at that airport when that bomb blew up. On his way to the Congo. God delivered him. He wasn't hurt. People say, oh, it was the Muslim radical terrorists. There was a shooting where someone walked into a church in the southern United States and killed everyone at the prayer meeting. And they say, oh, it was racially motivated or hate motivated. That's a world perspective. The Christian perspective is this. Darkness and light are in mortal combat. We have the assurance that light will win, but there will be fatalities. And as a Christian with a God worldview, we understand the greater dynamic of the darkness that's happening and the light that's happening, and we know where we stand because we love him with all of our mind. And we learn to begin to think about people in regards to not whether they are someone who is of the light or the darkness, and so we treat them Differently, but we learn to understand and think of everybody as needing to come to redemption. And our job as disciples in global missions is to bring them to that redemption. He wants us to love him with all of our mind, to have a God perspective on the worldview, to give him all matters that involve volition and will. That's a fancy way of making decisions that he wants us to make and following through on those decisions with the ability he gives us volition and will. Too often, we try to make decisions, and if they go well, we say, God blessed us, and if we go bad, we say, we didn't listen to God. We should have listened to God in the first place and let him direct us if we are truly disciples. All of our mind, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. To expect those who live in darkness to live by a divine moral code is a waste of time. They need to have a change of heart. 
And when the heart is set right, the feet will go in the direction they need to. Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 2. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 15, verse 6. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 23. To be made new in the attitude in your minds, of your minds. And be put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. In all of your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We are disciples of the King. We need to love him with all of our mind. The fourth one there, he wants us to love him with all of our strength. All of our ability, all of our strength, all of our might. I remember when I first came into the Christian faith and I headed off to Bible school and they said, oh, you need to sit down and read Tim LaHaye's 29 or 32 spiritual gifts. I forget how many of them there were there. Decide which ones you were and you fit in this little pigeonhole and you go off and do your spiritual gifts. You know, the longer you walk in the faith, the harder it is to distinguish between your natural abilities and gifts and those that God gives you because the pie gets stirred. And pretty soon it's hard to say what God has given you and what he hasn't unless you recognize his lordship. Then you know he created you with those gifts. He created you with those abilities. He gave you spiritual endowment with whatever he gave you in a spiritual gift. And the bottom line is he wants it all. So it really doesn't matter where it comes from as long as you know where to use it. He wants you, he wants you to love him with all of your strength to serve him with our natural abilities as well as our gifting by his strength for his ends and by his plan you see discipleship is cheap but it's not free discipleship is free but it's not cheap and my wife rescued me again thank you my dear There is a cost to becoming a disciple of the king, and Jesus shed his blood to establish that price. There is a cost of following him, a cost of giving him all of our heart, giving him all of our soul, giving him all of our mind, giving him all of our strength, so that in the end he is glorified and we are not. His kingdom is preached and ours is not. Darkness is defeated and light wins. This is what discipleship is all about. So when we look at those things, we begin to understand at least a little bit what the motivator of world missions is all about. In 2007, I was in Nepal. At that time, it was a Hindu monarchy. It was illegal to build a church. I was with a little congregation there. We had a service. There's a couple families that came to faith. And later, the missionary there, the BCM missionary, um, the closest English equivalency of his name would be Robin Vaija. Robin said, Pastor, we want to build a church. He said, but we know it's illegal, so we're going to build a great big pastor's house. And he took me to a rice paddy, and he said, we want to build it here. We knelt down in that rice paddy in 2007. We said, Lord, we don't know how this is going to happen, but we ask you to build a church here. Within a year, the Hindu monarchy fell and a parliamentary government took over in Nepal. A communist parliament 
government. Now, from our Yankee perspective, we say, oh, that's terrible. From mine, I say, praise the Lord. You know why? Because it went from a religious government to a secular government, and freedom of religion was instantly granted to everyone, and it became possible to build a church. Now, I don't explain how God does all the things. I know he puts kings up and he takes kings down. But I do know this. We couldn't build a church. We prayed, and God lets us build this church. A little after that, in 2000, uh, 2009, I was there and I dedicated a church. And you know what? God gave us an upgrade at no extra cost. Instead of being in that rice paddy that gets flooded several times a year to grow rice, he put it on top of a mountain overlooking a river. Everyone could see it in the community. And I cut the ribbon and we worshiped in that house. And we were excited about what was going, going there. People were being baptized. The church was growing. And then in 2015, on April 5th, you remember they had an earthquake. 8, 7.8 on the Richter scale. 55 seconds of shaking. Mount Everest lost a meter in height. So if you climb Mount Everest pre that date, you'll be higher than anyone who climbs it later. The city of Kathmandu, where our church was at, has moved. I believe they said it's 5 to 10 meters, and it continues to shift, so they're not allowing any new building. There were thousands of people that were killed. 100,000 homes were destroyed. As far as we know, maybe 8,000 to 9,000 people were killed. There were over 200 aftershocks that happened in the month afterward that were over 5.5 to 6.0. So the place continued to shake. The place continued to tremble. It happened on a Sunday morning. Robin was there in church. They had finished a 40-day fast for the salvation of souls in Nepal. He said, Pastor Marty, we were there praying. The windows began to rattle. The walls began to shake. And I thought it was the Holy Spirit coming back. I don't know how that fits your theology, but it would definitely shake me up. And he said, after we prayed, he said, I realized it wasn't the Holy Spirit at all. It was an earthquake. And so I had people get out. He said, everyone left. And he said, I was the last one out. And as he walked out the door, the front fell off the church and into the river and completely destroyed the church building. And we asked the question, Lord, why when you gave us this church, would you let it be destroyed? You see, Robin and his believers had reached out to the community and they immediately managed to get together a tent. And they pulled all things together. We sent them some funds. They helped uh, minister to people there so that Hindus, as well as believers, ate out of the same pot and slept under the same tent. And the people who were non-believers, instantly many of them started to become believers. And we started to see an awakening, a revival of sorts. We moved to a place close by, a flat spot, so a part of the mountain fell off again. They wouldn't lose a church. And they built a temporary church. It's already full. They're already starting other church plants. They say, Pastor, we need help. We need more help. Can you send us some funds to support more missionaries? Because God is using those people as disciples. It wasn't because they had a fancy church. God took that away. It wasn't because they had lots of money, because they didn't. They belonged to BCM. We're a faith-based mission. But you know what? They had Jehovah Elohim, Jehovah, Elohim, God, our Lord. The creator shook the stuff he created. The creator preserved his children in the midst of that creation. 
the Creator revealed Himself to them, and that not one single believer of our groups in Nepal were damaged, and not one single house was damaged in that earthquake. Temples around them fell, the whole center of the city collapsed. We lost a church building. But like Robin said, that's not the church. We just happened to be meeting there. What does that show us? That shows us how God works through us. We know who he is. We know what he wants from us. And now it shows us how he works through us. The second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If your vertical love relationship with God is connected, then and only then will you have a meaningful horizontal relationship where you express divine love to the people around us. What does it say there in verse 30? It says, the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. How does God work through us? The simple answer is love. It may seem trite until you understand the depth of the love required by God of his disciples before they are prepared to be true disciples. We love God, and he works through us. He has chosen to use his people to reach other people. We are to reach our neighbor as ourself. We are to meet them in their need, whatever they may be, that may be. We are to meet them regardless of whom they are, whether it be an orphan in Nepal, an orphan in Africa, a starved child if you find one in your neighborhood, whether it be a widow, whether it be someone who is the victim of a disaster. All of these people have a need. The easy thing for us is to look at some of them and say, okay, you're in poverty because you don't work, or you're in a disaster because something happened. You shouldn't have built next to the river or on a mountain or whatever. We could come up with a multitude of justifications why we don't extend the love of God to the people around us based on what they believe or where we disagree or the color of their skin or whether they live in our township or not. But the bottom line is this. The inclusiveness of the divine love that God demonstrated to us prohibits exclusivity in the demonstration of love by us to others. God is an equal opportunity, Savior, and Redeemer. And we, as his children, should be equal opportunity witnesses of the light to those who are in darkness. I talked about Myanmar and the problems that we had there. One of the projects we have there is we build a bore well. I went into a bore well. It's a water well. They call them bore wells. That's some of their old English colony language coming through. I dedicated a bore well. One of the bore wells I dedicated, I was from here to that piano from the old church. It was burned out. I could still smell the smoke on the charred adobes of that church. Behind me was a new church. Right here was the bore well. We dedicated that well, and we blessed that well, and it had clean water for the community. Across the street, in another situation exactly the same, there was another well. But because of the caste system in India, only the upper-class caste could use that well. The rest of the village went to the river. But they could walk across the street and use our well. You know what the impact of that is? in Arisa and those other places, when people have persecuted you, they have burned your church down. In that particular instance, they burned the pastor's down, house down twice. When you say to them, you know what? 
This water's for you, and it's free. This is discipleship. This is the core to world missions. It begins here in your heart and in mine. Regardless of their faith or nationality, whether they be Muslim, whether they be Hindu, whether they be Buddhist, or as I found increasingly in North America and Europe in our post-Christian society, whether they be nothingness, where they feel that Christianity and faith is something for people that have no intellect. They still need the light. You still love them. You still endure their ridicule because someone endured it for you. He works through us for his purposes to give freely. You see, nobody can take from you what you freely given to God. There was a young lady, and my time is running out. There was a young lady that I worked with in Bolivia when I, Jeanette and I were there for 17 years with Avant. She was working with street people. There's a lot of kniving, shooting, kids killing each other, drugs, all of that in the street. She was a sweet young Canadian girl, and I said to her, Karina, I said, you really want to work with these at-risk people? She said, yes. I said, then you need to decide what the price you are willing to pay is and give it to God in regards to her personal safety. I was speaking to her. If you give everything to God, then no one on the street can forcibly take anything away from you because you've already given it away. You, as believers sitting here this morning, have a choice to make. Will you give it to him? Will you give it all to him and no one can deprive you of anything? Or will you be one of the people who hasn't come to terms with the lordship of our father? Let me finish with a story. On the third week of August in Myanmar, we already talked about it, Parliament passed a law. It's called an anti-conversion law. In other words, if you want to change faith, you have to fill out a form and get permission from the government to change your faith. If you are Buddhist and you want to become Christian, you go to the government, Department of Religion, you fill out the document saying, I'm Fulano de Tal, or whatever I am. I want to fill out this document declaring that I'm going to become a Christian. They then interrogate you and the people around you to find out whether you've been bribed to become a Christian or been coerced in any way, or they promised you an education or something like that to become a Christian. And if they find anything that they don't like, they deprive you the ability of conversion. If you don't report that you are converting and they catch you, you go to prison for two years. The person that converts you goes to prison for two years. When we talked to our pastor there, because we're doing church planning aggressively there. In fact, we're looking for funding for those pastors. We said, how's this going to affect your church planning? He said, it won't. We'll continue to preach the gospel. We'll continue to plant churches. What the government doesn't understand is you cannot persecute the church into existence. You can accept them into your organization to extinction. But you can't persecute them and chase them away. They just had an election in Myanmar. One of the people very close to the new president is a proclaimed Christian. I have no idea how this is going to end, but I know that in the end, God gets the glory if his disciples walk in the light. 
I told you I was going to finish with that. I have one more fast story because I can see the clock, but thankfully from here I can't read the hands. <laughs> and this one's here is digital, so it postdates me. I went to India some years ago, and I met a young man by the name of John Peter. John Peter was convalescing at our Ebenezer Bible Center. He was a church planter. He had been working in an area when three people came to him and said, John, we need you to come with us and go and pray with somebody. So they got on the train, and what he didn't realize is that the people on that, the three that had invited him were actually planning to kill him. So partway along the way, they beat him with their sandals, which in India is the, the, uh, the supreme insult if you take your shoe off and hit someone or throw it at him. They beat him until he fell unconscious. They shaved his head, they stripped his clothes, they urinated on him, and they threw him off of a railroad bridge into the river below. Three days later, he woke up on the beach. He didn't know how he got in there, didn't know where he was at. He finally got to somewhere where someone took pity on him and he was able to make a call and we were able to go get him. When I met him, there was scabs all over his body. His hair was just starting to grow back. He could barely walk. And we said, Pastor John, you know, maybe we should move you to a different village where it's not quite so hard. And he looked at us and he said, you know, they told me if I ever came back, they'd cut my body into a hundred pieces throw it back in the river. He said, if they cut my body into a hundred pieces, every piece is going to cry the name Jesus. My question to you this morning is very simple. Are you a disciple? Do you know who God is? Do you know what he wants from you? Do you know how he is ready to work through you? Only you, as the light in you works in your life, can change this world for Jesus Christ. Truly, the heart of global missions is discipleship. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for who you are today. Father, I thank you for the individuals here who are here either because they're believers or here for some other reason. I know that you walk in the midst of us. I know that you will speak to hearts, and you even now look at the hearts of each of us, and you know whether we claim you as Lord or whether this is a convenience faith. I would pray for each person that if they need to know you better or need to know you for the first time, that they would do so without delay because you demand it. In your name we pray.